This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations and the home of the Crystal River National Wildlife Refuge. My name is Monica Scroggin, and I'm the Visitor Service Specialist at Crystal River National Wildlife Refuge. Located about 90 minutes west of Orlando and roughly the same distance north of Tampa, the refuge protects a remarkable system of freshwater springs. They all feed into the Crystal River, a calm waterway that's as clear as glass and flows seven miles to the Gulf Coast. We have the largest congregation of manatees in the U.S. right here in Crystal River. Crystal River is the only refuge dedicated specifically to safeguarding manatees. And every winter, huge numbers of the majestic sea cows gather here. The best place to start your visit is at the celebrated Three Sisters Spring. So you can look down from the boardwalk at Three Sisters Springs, some places 20 feet deep, and you can see hundreds of manatees just resting in the spring. Every now and then you hear a little and then that's a manatee coming up for a breath. And it's really cool to see the young ones swimming around and they are actually really playful. You can explore this exceptional wetland habitat on hiking and biking trails. Or for a truly unique experience, rent a kayak or paddleboard, along with a mask and snorkel, and glide along the river. Then take a dip in the 72-degree water with a manatee. Just be sure that you're a passive observer, that you follow all the refugees' rules for respectful behavior around these incredible animals. You're with this thousand-pound creature swimming under the water, and for somebody that's never experienced it before, this just giant animal a lot of people are scared at first but then they just realize that the manatees are curious creatures and they just want to see what you're doing there and they they leave people alone but it's it's really magical learn more about the many adventures to be had at the crystal river national wildlife refuge and across the sunshine state at visitflorida.com outside From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. What would you think if I were to tell you that there's a switch in your mind that allows you to vanquish fear and eliminate stress? It sounds great, right? So, like, where's the switch? And how do I flip it? As you might guess, the answers aren't so simple but they are attainable. At least that's the argument Scott Carney makes in his latest book, The Wedge. Scott is best known for his New York Times bestseller, What Doesn't Kill Us, which had him jumping into ice baths with Dutch fitness guru Wim Hof and taking up all kinds of extreme fitness training. By pushing way, way past the limits of what he thought he could handle, Scott built up incredible physical endurance. And he also cured an autoimmune illness that had plagued him since he was a kid. Along the way, he started to understand how humans can get much better at handling almost any kind of difficult situation. It all comes down to a method he now calls the wedge, which allows us to choose how we respond to challenging stimulus, whether it's a news headline or a circling shark, versus being at the mercy of the automatic reactions that so often make us feel terrible. For the last few years, Scott traveled all over the planet seeking out people who understand the subtle ways we can adapt our bodies and our minds to be more resilient in the face of just about anything. 
Given the state of constant anxiety that we're all in right now in the wake of the coronavirus, this would seem a very desirable skill to develop. Which is why outside editor Chris Kyes recently connected with Scott to ask, what exactly is the wedge technique? And how can we learn it right now? Here's Chris. I'll be honest, when I started reading it, I was like, this is not going to be relevant to readers. And then I dove in and, you know, your book is full of these fascinating and, you know, frankly, we'll get into some of them, terrifying methods uh, readers can implement in their lives. But a lot of them really, you know, address everything from boosting immunity to vanquishing fear and, and really combating stress. And so... As we get in, you know, I want to talk about some of those specific uh, ideas and, and things and methods that people can can apply to their daily lives, literally right now, um, when they need them. But let's first dive into your overall premise. And as you write early on, humans love comfort to the point of absurdity. What do you mean by that? And, and what's the result? Yeah, I mean, you know, what is comfort anyway? Like, it's it's not a thing. It's not like you suddenly arrive at comfort and then you're at the perfect place. What 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 it usually is is like the inverse of stress. Like you were in a stressful situation and now you're not in a stressful situation. So that's how it feels comfort. But there's not like an ideal state where you're in this place and that you'll all that place will always be comfortable. And in in fact, what we see is that comfort generally narrows the band of experience that you want to inhabit. So, you know, if you lie in your perfectly comfortable bed for like six days, you're going to hate it because it's going to going to make you all creaky and, 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 and less robust. And so I see the, the, that concept of comfort as narrowing our range of ability to uh, and, and places in which we can act. Um, but if we talk about if we if we think about um, if we want to be comfortable in multiple environments, the way you do that is you expose yourself to gentle stresses um, and things that expand your range so that there's more areas that you can actually feel okay operating in. As you say, you know, we inherited these bodies from our ancestors who were constantly adapting to discomfort. So have we kind of... Um, narrowed even our ability to adapt because we're so used to if it's hot outside we go into the air-conditioned room if it's cold we get the heat on we haven't narrowed our ability to adapt but we've certainly maladapted ourselves so if you think about our ancestors you know you, you go back you know you don't even have to go back three hundred thousand years you could go back like 200 years and you'll realize that that um you were much more at the mercy of the the variations in the environment. But, you know, our biology evolved in conditions that were constantly changing. And we didn't have uh, technology, really, that that mitigated those, at least not in the way that we do now. Like right now, I can it can be a blizzard outside. I walk into my house and I flip a switch and it's like 72 degrees and perfect. Uh, and and by doing that, you have this sort of just very narrow band where, again, you are comfortable. Uh, but, you know, if, if you look at like literature from uh, like the 1880s, you'll find that the average temperature in people's houses was like 55 to 57 degrees Fahrenheit. Now it's 72. It's because we've been constantly narrowing that band of where we want um, we want to uh, exist. However, those abilities have not disappeared. We had the same basic archaic bodies of our ancestors 300,000 years ago. And the way they they had robustness was uh, 
exposing themselves to extremes. I mean, it wasn't even exposing self, themselves. They just had extremes hitting them all the time. So their bodies naturally developed robustness. Um, you wouldn't take a caveman, though. Like if you took a caveman from 300,000 years ago, and you brought him to your modern day apartment, he would also love central heating. He would also love polar fleece. He would also love all of these things. Um, but uh, but because he had existed in so many different ranges and she had existed in so many different ranges, um, she, they were just able to operate in, in all sorts of crazy environments. Yeah. And your, your discovery of some of these concepts and ideas began with learning about and writing about Wim Hof, um, known by some as the Dutch madman. You know, Wim has had a huge impact in recent years, but Let's assume that most readers don't know who he is still and haven't encountered his concepts before. Give us an idea of, of how you came across him and some of the methods that he's created. Sure. Well, I was on a uh, assignment from Playboy magazine to go and uh, meet Wim Hof. And I had, at that point in my career, and this was in 2011, I've been writing a lot about how meditation can kill you and make you go crazy. And especially this pursuit for superpowers can put you in a really bad spot mentally. And I have a book called The Enlightenment Trap on that topic. Uh, and so then when I heard about Wim Hof and who is this, you know, the, the ice man, they call him, he, he sits on glaciers in his underwear and like controls his body temperature. And he says he can control his immune system. And he was running his very first training course uh, open to sort of the public about how to learn the Wim Hof method. And I flew out there to be on it, essentially to debunk him. Uh, but instead, you know, I, I, I meet him. And in the matter of a week, uh, I am doing the exact same things he is. I'm, I'm sitting in ice cold lakes, uh, you know, again, in, 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 you know, just a bathing suit. I climb up a mountain in a bathing suit. It's uh, like two degrees Fahrenheit at that time. And I, I develop that robustness that he has incredibly rapidly. And, and this was because, you know, evolution, the creatures that, that survived – uh, adapted to their environment quickly. And we have those evolutionary ability, abilities as humans. Uh, and uh, and he has a method that can activate that. Um, the Out of that uh, research, uh, I, I released a book called What Doesn't Kill Us that was a New York Times bestseller about his whole uh, experience and how we can use cold environments specifically to uh, change our uh, inner biology. And how I got to the wedge is that at the end of that journey, I climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit. It was really cold. It was like negative 30 degrees. Uh, and I had this sort of transcendent moment at the top of that mountain. I was with Wim Hof. And, uh, you know, it, it's like the cheesiest line I've ever actually thought. <laughs> but, I, but, but it's like I, I climb up the mountain and I think to myself, I am not on the mountain. I am the mountain. <laughs> Right, which is, of course, absurd in many ways. But it is also this great feeling of oneness and connection to the environment that um, that I felt it was very, very profound. It was like the spiritual moment for me because uh, I realized that by connecting with the sensations of that cold, I was like cooperating with the environment, not fighting against it. And I wanted to find that space in 
every practice that's out there. I wanted to understand how, what, how I could reduce the most significant parts of the Wim Hof method and apply them to absolutely everything. And that's where this concept of the wedge comes from. And that's where this journey really begins. And I want to put a pin in the, that for a second, because I want to get to the wedge, but I, I do want to stick on Wim Hof for just a second, because you went there pretty quickly from being a skeptic and taking a week-long course to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in your underpants. So <laughs> what were, what, <laughs> tell, tell us, like, what did you learn there? What, what are these methods? And, um, and I know that at least more recently, what have seemed like just cockamamie ideas have been backed up by research. So what is he doing and what do we know about the effectiveness of his approach? So the Wim Hof method is basically two things. The first one is um, a breathing method where you learn to hold your breath for an extended period of time. And you do that by hyperventilating or what they call it superventilating. It sounds like this. You did about 30 of those breaths until you're really dizzy. Um, and then you exhale and hold your breath for as long as you can. And, and the first time you do it, you might hold your breath for 40 seconds or a minute. Um, but as you do more and more rounds, um, you're able to hold your breath um, with, uh, with empty lungs. So you've exhaled um, for three or four minutes at a time. Uh, and what you're really doing here, instead, in addition to just holding your breath, in a way, who cares about that? But what you're really doing is creating a stress in your body, and and, and it's sort of like the the anvil that you're that you're working against, and then you're trying to focus on those sensations of essentially gasping and trying to push those sensations a little bit further away. Now, we're not trying to do this till you pass out. Um, we're trying to do this just to, so, so you get to that sort of breaking point and, and you do this, you know, 10% before you get there. Uh, so that's one half of his method. The second half of his method is, is intentional um, sort of cold exposure, whether this is a cold shower or an ice bath or something along those lines. And your autonomic reaction, and by autonomic, I mean your automatic bodily responses that you don't have a lot of control over, is you jump into an ice bath and everything clenches up and and you you're you're like you're, you're it's horrible right and you're fighting it and you're like oh no right you just imagine an ice bath and and you're, those sensations will probably come to your head um now, in the Wim Hof method, you get in there and then instead of that clenching feeling, which is really your fight or flight responses, what we call the sympathetic nervous system. Um, so that's adrenaline and cortisol and all these stress hormones going into your body. Uh, instead of doing that, you relax in the ice water and you will yourself to just be like, I'm here, I'm okay, and I can do this. And you, you relax all of your muscles. And by doing that, your body activates a different way to warm itself than uh, the shivering. And essentially, these two methods are, are creating a stresses that, that push up against your automatic processes. And then it's using your mind to reduce those, uh, those automatic processes and recontrol them. And when I ve the very first time I jumped into the ice water with Wim, this concept of the wedge like popped into my head. It was, it was like, okay, we're here and I'm putting a wedge in between that stimulus of the cold water and the response I have to, to shivering. And so I'm literally like using, I guess, intentions, I guess it is, um, to create 
space um, where there was no space before. What has the research shown about his methods? Because he says he can um, boost his immunity through these processes. And and from what I understand, that um, that's actually happened and, and been shown to work. Well, uh, there is no research that I am aware of um, boosting his immunity like that 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 to me seems like you're boosting uh, you you take an active infection and somehow you do better with it um well i think that is possible the the clinical research on him is a little bit different than that it is um he so there this is the 2014 radbound study where uh, wim trained 14 college students uh, in his method for a week. And basically they did the same training program I did, which was hyperventilating and, and holding their breath and climbing up a mountain in their skivvies and, and reducing their shiver responses. They brought these students back to Radbound University. That's, this is in Holland. And they uh, injected them with endotoxin. Now, endotoxin is E. coli bacteria that has been killed by heat. So it has all of the markers on its cellular walls to trigger a primary immune response, which is basically the fevers and shakes that you would get if you had a, a, the flu, right? Or like sort of that, that, that initial drive away the bad guys in your body response. Now, the, the guys who, who ran this, Peter Pickers and Matthias Cox, uh, had designed a study to test um, so, uh, uh, immune suppressant drugs. So, you know, if you take it, like you get an organ transplant, um, you get a kidney from another person, you put it in your body, you have to turn down your immune system or else your body will reject the organ. They had devised tests to test whether the drugs successfully lowered the immune system. And what Wim Hof had claimed was that you could use his methods and turn down your immune responses. Uh, and what happens is these kids all go into his... his uh, uh, into this lab. They inject them all with this endotoxin and where they should have had a, a very like high fevers, achy joints, all the things you would have with a, with a primary immune response. Um, they instead had almost no reactivity to it. And what this showed was that they could turn off their immune systems, or at least turn off their immune reactions um, with this practice. And now why that's relevant is that the world is currently plagued with autoimmune issues like arthritis, Crohn's disease, lupus, um, you know, even um, COVID-19. One of the primary ways that it kills you is with uh, your immune system actually killing you, not necessarily the, the direct action of the virus, um, that, that it's actually your immune system sort of goes crazy and tries to tamp down and that fills fluid in your lungs. And that's one of the ways that you die from covid uh, what the Wim Hof method shows is that you can turn down those responses. So it has had amazing effects for people suffering from uh, autoimmune issues. Uh, now, does it help with with immunity itself? There has been no good studies on that that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, they haven't injected him with live E. coli and see if he could just beat it back. Um, maybe they will do that in the future. Maybe there's some ethical problems with that. But this is a good transition to what you describe in the book as by far the least interesting immune system remission story in the annals of medicine, <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines, by the way. But, you know, you, you were a, a canker sore sufferer and no. you noticed that they went away after this. Right. And, and, and it, I, 
you know, I, I talked to so many people who had like really serious autoimmune illnesses that sort of went into remission with, with the Wim Hof method. Um, but for me, you know, I've had these canker sores, which are these white mouth ulcers that pop into my mouth um, since I was before I can even remember. My, my mother told me about my first canker sore and it would and they for me. Uh, they were really bad. They were about the size of a dime. And I would get them once, at least once a month, sometimes every two weeks. And they'd last for a week. And they sucked. They just made life miserable, even though they weren't life-threatening. And after I did the story for Playboy, uh, and, I, and I met, you know, after in 2011, I just kept on doing the method. And uh, after about like four or five months, I was like, hey, I haven't had a canker sore. That's weird, um, and I, I didn't even connect the dots at that point. To be to be honest, and uh, now we're about uh, almost ten years out from me doing the Wim Hof method pretty much daily, and uh, I have gotten one canker sore in that ten-year period. Wow. We'll be right back. Earlier, we heard from Monica Scroggin with the Crystal River National Wildlife Refuge, which is dedicated to the preservation of Florida's manatees. For Monica, working here has given her an incredible opportunity to get close to these gentle giants. I was lucky enough to have a mom and a calf that stuck around over the summer. I was actually snorkeling into the spring and then I turned around. I don't know, I felt like something was there. And sure enough, there comes this mother and her calf right behind me swimming through the spring run. And they just swam right under me and just minded their own business and went on their way. It was really incredible just to be that close. I keep saying the word magical, but it really was. You don't expect something so big to be swimming with you. I've d I'm a native Floridian, so I've dove a lot with sharks and barracudas and all kinds of other fish and marine life. But to have this giant manatee come up next to you and just swim right by, it's really cool. Thanks to the refuge, as well as other conservation efforts, the manatee population has risen in recent decades. And in 2017, manatees were officially removed from the U.S. endangered species list. The animals still face challenges, but the effort that Florida has made to help them is one of the many reasons Monica feels her home state is such a special place. The respect that people have for manatees is amazing. Um, everyone watches out for everyone else, making sure they are being careful. There's a manatee there, and it's just great to see the whole community care so much about um, an animal that is actually threatened. Learn more about how you can swim with manatees at Crystal River and find exceptional adventures all across Florida at visitflorida.com outside. You are, were obviously, we went in as a skeptic, um, totally have bought in, but the experience also made you think, as you say, and this is the title of the book, you wanted to look for these other wedges of where you could get in and um, intervene between what you say is stimulus and response to create these stressful experiences that you could intervene in and adapt to how you um to how you experience those feelings. So what's your definition of the wedge? So the easiest definition, uh, and there's, there's actually sort of multiple definitions in the book as we get sort of deeper into the concepts, but the most accessible one is 
putting a creating space between stimulus and response. So whatever's coming in from the outside world or in some cases even the internal world, the sort of like emotional turmoil and uh, and that sort of thing is is focusing on the sensations of that experience and then delaying or or choosing how you want to respond to it. And so it's it's like creating space um, between the uh, so between stimulus and response. So we we don't just act and react automatically, but we we choose whether we want to. And you know the, that concept of the wedge, you can either create more space or in some cases you can actually remove the space so that you do act automatically, but you've sort of done that consciously. So the first topic that you started exploring beyond sort of what you've done with WIM was fear. Why start there? So fear, the, the, the amazing thing about, about fear is that it's this visceral response in your body, right? But it, it, it doesn't have to do with a direct um, a threat, against you. It's not like cold, where cold you're in the effect of the cold water and it triggers it and that's and there's sort of a pathway that triggers this this cold response. But fear is really in your head first because it's about you anticipating something in the future. Like if you're actually in the moment of being mauled by a tiger, um, you're not afraid right? You are being mauled by a tiger. It's a very different thing. You're afraid when you think about getting mauled by that tiger. So I wanted to look at anticipation and how time gets factored in to these responses because that is really how we experience anxiety. You know, you have that, that, that tightness in your chest, these, the uh, tight stomach, these sensations that, that are sort of this intermediary between what you might experience in the future, what you imagine you might experience in the future, and what you're feeling uh, right now. And I wanted to look at that. And and I went to the Huberman lab at Stanford University. Uh, and, and Andrew Huberman is this just amazing neuroscientist out there. Uh, and, you know, definitely check out his work. Uh, and what he does is he dunks people in uh, uh, to swim with great white sharks in a virtual reality environment where you're swimming with the sharks and it should trigger a fear response in people who are especially susceptible to, to, to um, this thing and they have like a mild panic attack maybe or like a like this these sensations of anxiety in them and by exposing them to these stimulus over and over again Andrew Huberman makes the connections between autonomic arousal to stimulus and uh, and the stimulus that he's presenting so he has a sort of a standard stimulus for people and over exposure, repeated exposure, people lose their fear of great white sharks now for me when I swam in his vert with his virtual sharks, I didn't feel that much. I mean, I, I'm not really scared of uh, of like a, a movie of some sharks swimming around. Uh, so I actually had to find later some uh, more vis- things that actually made me more scared uh, than that, which I do find uh, a little later in the book. But I do want to um, segue here because the most important thing that I learned in the in the Huberman lab was where the the neural pathways that encode information in our body, which is really the central concept in uh, the wedge that I think is very worthwhile for people to understand. Uh, And so I'm going to use the example of an ice bath because I think a lot of people can at least imagine what an ice bath would feel like. Uh, So the very first time you experience 
anything in the world. It has to come in through your peripheral nervous system. It has to come in through your fingers, your skin, your ears, your eyes, right? Because your brain, the center of processing power, is locked inside your skull, floating in a little salt bath up there. So it's sort of locked away. So it needs the sensory system to make sense of the world. And, and essentially, everything you ever experience has to come through those pathways, which means uh, that how we make sense of sensation is ultimately these are the bits and bytes that make up human cognition. This is like literally the ones and zeros of our human computer in our brain. Now, the very first time you experience anything, uh, that sensation wires through your peripheral nervous system, uh, rockets up your spinal cord, and ends up in the very lowest bit of your brain, which is the limbic system, the so-called lizard brain. Uh, and if it's a new sensation, let's say this is the first time you dunked into the ice water, this signal comes up with basically a quality you know, there, there's this sensation, but it doesn't have any meaning. It's more or less data. And there's a volume control attached to it. It's like a strong symbol. So ice water rockets in there. And so we know it's a strong value to it. And I like to think of the limbic system as something like a library. And in this library, there is a librarian and she's got all of these books of previous sensations that she's felt uh, on the wall. And when this signal comes in, the librarian looks at the signal checks the whole library and says, hey, I've never felt this ice water thing before. And so she doesn't know what to do with it. It's just data. So she kicks it over to this book binding area of the brain called the paralimbic system. And this is like a centimeter away. It's super close. And this is all happening extremely quickly. The, the paralimbic system picks it up and this book guy says, okay, great. We have a new sensation. I don't know what it means. So to, to, to define its meaning, it goes around and looks at your current emotional state, your whatever emotion you're, ha you're having. And for various reasons, um, the, the emotion that's associated with cold um, is unmitigated horror right? and terror <laughs> and, and just the worst thing ever. Uh, and, it, and it's probably because um, the very first thing you experience is going from a warm environment inside your mother to the uh, cold environment of the air outside. But anyway... Uh, so there is a, like an earlier related symbol out there. But anyway, so you have unmitigated horror and terror for ice water. He, 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 he binds that book, sensation and emotion, kicks it back down to the librarian. He says, great, unmitigated horror. Here's our ice water. And then you go about your business being miserable in the ice water. Now, this is the most important thing of neural symbols is that the next time you jump in ice water or have a similar experience, that signal rockets through your peripheral nerves goes up your spinal cord into your limbic system. The librarian looks around her library, sees the old symbol that you had before and says, look, here it is. I know what this means. This means unmitigated terror and horror. And she does not kick it up to the paralimbic system, which means that every time you experience a sensation that you've never, that you've experienced before, you are living in your emotional past. And this is like the central um, way that human cognition works. For whatever reason we're wired this way, this is what it is. And so the goal of the wedge is essentially to add new neural symbols to that library because the librarian um, doesn't lose the symbols. Those books are there always. Um, however, you can create new symbols when you know how this process works to bond new sensations or, or even old sensations with new emotions. And you can start to override and make those books on the librarian's shelves much more rich. 
So to take it back to Huberman's lab, <clears throat> if we're if 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 you were say terrified of sharks and um, to continue the the uh, librarian metaphor, Huberman's your librarian. He pulls out the book of sharks, puts you put on the the VR mask, and it's unmitigated horror. What's the what's the wedge now in this process of expose? If if by exposing you to that, and I'm I'm assuming it's sort of repeated bouts of of um, ex being exposed to it. What is the wedge in that um, process? Well. It's multiple things at once because we're not just experiencing um, a shark when we're when we're experiencing a shark, right? We are experiencing the full array of information that's coming from your sensory system. So you might see a shark, but you're also feeling water. You're also um, at, there's temperature on your skin. There's there's a number of sensations you have, even if they're sub perceptual, um, happening all at once. And seeing a great white shark is actually a very complex symbol because there's. I mean, there's thousands of things going on at once. But essentially, when you're swimming with virtual sharks, um, you're already in a safe spot, right? You walked into the virtual reality simulator. You saw the scientist on the other side. They told you you're, you're going to be safe and you just have to press this button and you're going to be able to get out of this situation. And they've prepped you in every way possible to get, make this not a fearful situation for you. Then you sit in, in, this, in this laboratory. You're exposed to the sharks. And if you are a sharkophobe, which I wish I knew the word for that, but I mean, there probably is one. But if you're a sharkophobe, you've already wired the visual sensation of a shark to all sorts of unmitigated horror, but you're trying to control the this, sensations around that so that you're trying to bond them to those other safe signals that you've had before uh, so that you can now overcome this, this situation. That would be the idea here. And this is also a very um, standard psychological technique um, called in cognitive behavioral therapy. There's exposure therapy. You know, how do you get somebody to uh, not be afraid of heights? Well, you know, you, you you don't take them to the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, look down and you'll, you know, you just get used to it, right? You start by like having them walk up some stairs and maybe stand on a chair. And, and you know, it's very slow exposure where the, where the stimulus of the height is gradually introduced until you're able to overcome it. Mm. What I wanted to get to next is breath work. And again, this connects back to Wim Hof, but you also explore all kinds of um, techniques that are out there and being developed now. And it can get a little bit um, sprawling and overwhelming when you think about all these different methods. So there's the Wim Hof, there's the DMT breathing, there's some of the stuff you learned with Brian McKenzie, but maybe we should start by you know, talking about what they all have in common, th this idea of CO2 tolerance. What is that and why is addressing it so so helpful? Well, I think actually the let's go back to what they all have in common um, first, uh, which is, you know, breath is the very first thing that the Buddha taught um, for me. Actually, it's the second thing that Buddha taught for meditation, right? Where you, uh, it is this bodily process which is so perfectly balanced between automatic and conscious that that right now or for this whole conversation that you've been listening to me yammer on um, you've been just breathing and you've probably not been thinking about your breathing but now you're thinking about your breathing and you can take a breath like it's it's this magical sort of place where you there's this perfect parity between automatic and uh, and consciousness and this is why 
I mean, like just about every meditation technique that has, has existed for at least 5,000 years that we're aware of, uh, it goes back to the breath. And there are so many techniques uh, that, that really provide a variety of, of uh, responses, whether it's about anxiety or depression on one end to uh, intense athletic performance or on another to another axis where you might be having like almost hallucinogenic experiences with the breath. And it's such a powerful tool. And I, you know, I can't go through all of it in this book and I don't even try. Uh, Now, the question about CO2 tolerance is very interesting uh, because when you breathe, you're breathing in oxygen, the oxygen enters your body and it, and it, and, uh, and it, 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 it hits your hemoglobin in your blood and it sort of goes around and then you exhale um, carbon dioxide. So you're ex- exhaling carbon and oxygen. Uh, and for whatever reason, evolution thought this was a good idea. Uh, you cannot detect oxygen in your system. You don't have a, a, any um, chemoreceptors to detect your oxygen levels. What you do have are chemoreceptors that uh, detect the byproduct of respiration, which is the, which is CO two. So when you're gas, when you, when you're holding your breath and you're ga- and you feel like you want to gasp, the reason you fe- feel you want to gasp is because CO two has built up in your lungs, and and that is what se- is sending off alarm bells. Now, CO2 tolerance is interesting because if you want to increase your athletic ability, if you want to build up the floor of your athletic ability, one method which is incredibly good is what Brian McKenzie calls building up CO2 tolerance, where, wherein you restrict the amount of you, – you restrict your respiration rate and you restrict the volume of air going in, into your body during exercise, so which by which I mean not breathing through your mouth but breathing through your nose. And by doing that, uh, you become accustomed to CO2 in your bloodstream and you're able to uh, resist that sort of breaking point, that th- those sensations of anxiety that happen when you have too much CO2 in your system. You're able to sort of wedge yourself against that. And, and, and what he sees is that when you start training with this oxygen restriction and then you take off the mask, you have this huge athletic boost um, that you can take into all sorts of performance. And how does CO2 tolerance come into play with the Wim Hof method that you described earlier? So with the Wim Hof method, the primary uh, uh, mechanism is blowing off CO2. So you're hyperventilating. (sighs) And when you're doing that, you're exhaling um, all of that CO2 you have. So you're actually – it's not – that part of the breathing is not building up CO2 tolerance. It's blowing off all your CO2 so that you can uh, do various sorts of work in that environment with no CO2. So if you're holding your breath, the CO2 slowly builds up again, um, but you're starting from like negative two instead of starting at, at zero. Um, however, the more you do the Wim Hof method, you know, you, you're, you're holding your breath with empty lungs. So you've hyperventilating, you've exhaled, you're holding your breath there. And and as you get better and better at, at holding your breath, you're actually now filling up your lungs with CO2 again, because you're still, um, you know, your blood's still moving through your body. And, and so CO2 is being dumped back in your lungs. And by doing that, you at the at the sort of the tail end of a breath hold, especially like a three minute breath hold, um, you're you're becoming very resilient to CO2 in that environment. 
So yeah, three. Let's talk about a three-minute breath hold, which feels a little bit like going to the moon to me. Um, but you've been doing, as you said, you know, close to a decade of of some of these breathwork practices. And <clears throat> anybody who's done even as simple as uh, you know trying to swim the length of a pool underwater knows that that visceral feeling of kind of panic. I need a breath. I need a breath. And one of the things I was amazed by is how you've you've sort of gotten to a place where that feeling that we are all very familiar with is, as you describe it, I think at one point is a place you kind of enjoy going. Describe that, like what through this work, what 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 is happening to make that more tolerable and even on some level pleasurable. So I want to just break in before I answer that question just briefly, because you use this. Um, you, you talked about swimming laps underwater. Uh, under no circumstances should you ever mix Wim Hof breathing with swimming underwater. Um, it, I know it, it makes intuitive sense. Hey, I can hold my breath for three minutes, so now I can swim underwater for a while. Um, this has been shown it has killed about nine people at this point for people who do this because the, the Wim Hof method, the, the, the mechanisms behind it are not the mechanisms behind free diving. Um, free diving, you're building up only CO2 tolerance, whereas Wim Hof, you're blowing off CO2. And for reasons that we don't really need to get into here too much, um, you can black out um, on the Wim Hof method fairly easy underwater. Uh, and people who have done this have died. So do not do that, even though, um, uh, yeah, no, just there's no even though. Just don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Noted. <laughs> uh, um, and the, so, so um, could you, the, the. So, so the question was <clears throat> really just, I use the underwater example mostly just for, for, listeners to understand kind of the sensation of, you know, holding right. your breath for a long time. And let's say, okay, we're, we're, we're above the water for this sensation. Mm -hmm. You're sitting at your, on your couch in a comfortable setting, right. holding your breath. <laughs> right. You start to feel that bit of panic. Nobody really likes that. You right. say you've gotten to a point where you kind of enjoy yes. going there. Yes. And I want to know how that is and, and what that sensation feels like now to you. Yeah, it is so interesting um, because now what what when I'm doing an intense breathing session I want to get to a place where my mind is sort of shutting down uh, and I know that sounds really bad but it's not as bad as it sounds um, I want to get to that point where I am um, become my, my consciousness is sort of diminishing but I'm still aware of my consciousness. And this is sort of that liminal space where you have sort of almost transcendental experiences. Uh, and I have a lot of the neuroscience in the book for how this works. But, but essentially, once you're not bound by the traditional stresses of the world and your brain starts shutting itself down, you have these sort of ecstatic moments that can be – they can feel very deep and meaningful. Uh, and you can get that in sort of the longer breath holds as long as you don't go too far, right? You don't really want to pass out. Um, this is before the passing out phase. And you can sort of extend that um, that euphoria you feel in, in the Wim Hof method by doing longer breath um, sessions in three rounds. But you do this for like an hour, hyperventilating, holding your breath, and hyperventilating, holding your breath. And you see all these crazy colors, and I see faces and weird symbols. And it's a, it's a, it's a really intense meditation that I get something out of it. Um, and, and it's really sort of hard to describe what that is. I mean, there's not a lot of great clinical research on what those symbols are that are coming up in my mind. But I, I find something 
um, deep about it, something very connected to the universe because my ego sort of dissolves in that moment. Uh, and, and another very interesting thing uh, is that later I was I was uh, later in the book, I'm doing a, 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 a um, at this uh, brain institute in Oklahoma where a doctor there is studying anxiety and how the body processes anxiety. And one of the, the ways that, that people panic is because they have too much CO2 in their system in general. It's like we're, we're most Americans are sort of chronic shallow breathers, like breathe through our mouths and we don't like fill up our lungs. That means that CO2 sort of builds up in the bottom. And his theory, and, and, and you know, it's backed up in a lot of places, is that if you just cleared the CO2, you wouldn't be as anxious. So uh, you know, you might think that the reason you're having a panic attack is because um, you had this fight with your wife and then you're worried about your job and whatnot. But in reality, it's just because you're not breathing well. This is his sort of one of the sort of main tenets. And so what cognitive behavioral therapists will often do in their therapeutic settings is is a lot of people are really nervous about having a panic attack because you feel very out of control. And you can induce a panic attack in almost anyone by having them breathe in a high mixture of CO2. So you just take a bunch of CO2, have them inhale, and for most people, you'll have this very intense panic attack. Um, indeed, even people who have damaged amygdala, which are the, the, the fear centers in the brain, people who have lesions in there and are incapable biologically of having fear. Um, this doctor has tested them by giving them the CO2 burst, and they go crazy. They have intense anxiety. Now, he said, you've been doing the Wim Hof method for a long time. I want to see how you respond to CO2. And I was like, oh, this is great. An experiment. I can't wait to do it. And I sit there in his test. And I have this like, I have the whole test on video, which is pretty fascinating to see. And the test works like this. You, you, you take the breath, you press a button, you take a breath, and then you exhale. And, and then he just sees how badly you freak out. And you're supposed to do three button pushes over the course of 30 minutes. Um, I take the CO2 the, and I take this full lung retention and I'm immediately in that place where I'm having that transcendent Wim Hof experience. I'm like, whoa, this is great. And the guy, the, the nurse scientist is like sitting across me. He's like, it's what? And then, I, and then I hit the button like eight times in the next like minute. And he's like, I've never seen this before in my life. You have somehow changed the way your body naturally responds to CO2 uh, and uh, and he's fascinated. Now he's actually designed a study and he's working with people to do the Wim Hof method and CO2 studies to, um, to see if uh, what the hell I just did. And I'm not an anxious person. There's probably a connection there. So let's end with the, the present moment that we're living through. And um, many of us are housebound now. We're dealing with a global pandemic and we're just awash in bad news, which are essentially all the ingredients um, you, you could have the perfect ingredient, the perfect mix to just spike anxiety. So what's the one hack that you describe that you think that would be most beneficial for, for our listeners? You know, the other day is when we, you know, this is what we're, we're in uh, March 25th right now. Um, the other day they announced social distancing measures uh, in, in my city and uh, sort of around the country. And, 
my interaction with the world at that point was full of anxiety. Like I was posting things on on Facebook that were, you know, this policy is bad or this policy is smart. Forget that politician. You know, I was, I was doing all these things and refreshing my browser and getting in fights with people on the internet. I know no one else here has ever done that who's listening, but this is something that, that I did specifically. And what was going on there when I sat back to think about it was – was I was trying to control the external world with my emotions, right? And, and, and everyone else was totally into it too because they were also commenting and trying to control the world with their emotions. But there's nothing you can do about changing the things that are outside of your control by refreshing a browser, right? We can't anger our ways into, into, into altering the world. And we have these like, you know, this is an evolutionary mismatch. Have you ever gotten to a point where you wanted to like throw your computer out the window because something bad happened on it. Like, why are you having a physical response to this sort of like mundane object, right? And it's because we go back to this evolutionary concept of of when our, in our our ancestors were on the savannah, you know, fighting their lions. Uh, every threat, environmental, animal, whatever, always had a physical output to it, and. And our bodies, you know, release cortisol and energy into our systems in order to deal with the thing right in front of us. But right now we don't have that. And when we're looking at the Internet, we're looking at these like really terrible things going on out out in the world. We want to control those things, but we can't. And we need to let those go. And instead, we need to whatever anxiety is being generated from you or me constantly refreshing my browser needs to find a physical stress to match it. And this is the most important thing right now. Uh, for me, breathwork with the Wim Hof method, I did, you know, the next, that, that night I was up all night like fighting with people in my brain. And in the morning I did my normal breath practice and it just interrupted that cycle. It just got right in the middle of it because when you're holding your breath for three minutes, your brain is not super active, right? You're, you're reaching that transcendent space. So that cycle got interrupted and I felt a million times better because I found a physical thing to push against. And this is what you need to do right now is you need to get out. And if you have a practice like yoga or um, running or kettlebells or whatever it is, double down on that right now. And that is a wedge into what the anxiety is because you need to find that physical space to interact. Um, you know, if you want to talk about specific things in my book, just about any one of those things uh, is a way to start looking at the world around you for stresses that are appropriate to the stresses we're getting through our virtual devices. That's outside editor Chris Kyes speaking with author Scott Carney about his new book, The Wedge. You can read an excerpt, focus on changing your relationship to fear at OutsideOnline.com slash The Wedge. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations. Learn more about the incredible experiences to be had across the Sunshine State at VisitFlorida.com slash Outside. We'll be back next week.